Kevin DeYoung asks, why do Christians die? Why do churches die? Why do Christians go hungry, endure tragedies, get cancer, and face persecution? Why do pastors fall into great sin and cast shame upon their churches and disgrace upon the gospel? Why do some churches grow loveless and cold? Why do other churches forsake the truth of Scripture? Why do church members fight among themselves? Why are there so many hypocrites in the church? Why does everything seem to go wrong for good believers even as they try to follow God? Why do churches tolerate clear moral deviancy and obvious theological error? Why do some churches get bigger and flashier without getting deeper and wiser? Why do other churches get cold and complacent? Why do churches neglect evangelism and missions? Why do churches hoard their resources? Why do churches take their eyes off the cross and give up on preaching? Why is the church sometimes ridiculed by intellectuals, the media, the government, and the cultural elites? Why are churches still divided by race and ethnicity? Why are many churches still ignorant of the most basic truths of the Bible? Why can't we do church better and be the church more faithfully? Why is it so hard to be a Christian? I'm sure we've all wondered such things from time to time, and there are at least four biblical answers. I'm going to mention three in passing before preaching an entire sermon on the fourth. Number one, God is sovereign. That will always have its role to play in these matters. Consider the teachings of of James and Hebrews. For his own glory... And for the good of his people, our Heavenly Father, he sends trials and allows for suffering. God is sovereign. Number two, we live in a fallen world. This is Eden's wreckage. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be, nor are they the things they will be one day, one day when Jesus returns. We live in a fallen world. Number three, human beings are sinners. We hurt each other. We violate God's laws and pay the consequences. We're a people full of fears, idolatries, adulteries, and self-love, which makes our lives and the lives of those people around us worse. And those are all good biblical answers as to why churches and Christians struggle and suffer. Human beings are sinners. We live in a fallen world. God is sovereign. But... There's another reason we sometimes forget the underlying cause of all this hostility. Satan. Loved ones, Satan is real. God tells us so in the Bible. The devil isn't just some hokey belief that intelligent people living in the 21st century ought to abandon. Satan is a wicked, created being, he is a person. And Satan hates his creator God, and he hates us. He hates us. Satan wants human beings generally to defy God. 
He wants us to rise up in anarchistic revolt against the holy and loving God, the God whose image we bear, the God who is our judge. He wants all people with him in hell, where we will defy God and be tormented for our treasonous defiance forever. Satan hates the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he hates all those who love and obey the gospel. Satan wants God's church around the globe destroyed. And Revelation 12, our text today, gives us a God's eye view, a divine perspective concerning the difficulties and sufferings of the church, the satanic rage we face, and how this satanic rage is overcome. We've been singing some of these themes this morning. This passage couched in the highly symbolic language of apocalyptic literature, tells us of the birth of our Messiah King, Jesus Christ. Believe it or not, this is a Christmas text. But the setting isn't in Bethlehem. It's in heaven itself. And instead of shepherds and the Magi coming to pay homage to the infant king, Revelation 12 relates a cosmic battle being waged for human souls. Revelation 12 tells us of the rage of our satanic adversary, a rage occasioned by the birth and triumph of our Lord and Savior. And though the crucial battle was won when Jesus rose victorious from the grave 2,000 years ago, Satan continues his struggle. Cast down from heaven and knowing that his time is short, the devil turns his hatred against the faithful. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Verse 17. Brothers and sisters, that's us. That means in these last days, Satan has turned his sights on us. Satan wants to destroy the church. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, human beings are sinners. But the underlying cause of all the hostility we face is Satan. Our defeated, yet rage-filled foe. That is why the church faces persecution. And it's why you face persecution and hardship if you're living a godly life in Christ Jesus. But be encouraged. I'm preaching good news this Lord's Day by laying bare the root cause of persecution in Revelation 12, that root cause being the birth and the triumph of Jesus. The Apostle John is encouraging believers to hold fast. He's telling Christians, don't give up. Persevere in the faith. Yes, the the death struggle of our adversary, with that death struggle comes some of the, the fiercest fighting in all of salvation history. There's going to be severe tribulation, but the outcome is certain. He is a defanged serpent. And we can look ahead and see the divine checkmate coming and be encouraged by that. As can the church in all the countries and regions of the world facing violent persecution. God's Son 
The lamb who was slain has won the victory. Jesus has triumphed. Jesus has saved his people and he's ushered in the new age of the Holy Spirit and he will consummate his eternal kingdom in his father's good time. Brothers and sisters, this is good news to take with us into all the uncertainties of 2024. If you look in your bulletin, you see point number one, the enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And what we see here is the occasion of Satan's great rage against the church is the birth, the birth and the triumph of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John begins the 12th chapter of his apocalypse, his revelation, that's what that means, by recording two signs, two great spectacles which appear in heaven. The first is a woman, a woman who stands in stark contrast to the great prostitute of chapter 17. Writing in the highly, in the highly symbolic, symbol-laden style of the apocalyptic literary genre, John tells us, verse 1, Revelation 12, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, so she's radiant, with the moon under her feet, which speaks of dominion, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And who is her child? Look at verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. John is quoting the Messianic prophecy of Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, which our brother Sam read for us this morning. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. So this woman's child is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Look at uh, verse 5b. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Oh, so that means this king of the Jews, he's no mere political ruler sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, right? He sits on God's throne. He is divine. And who is the divine Messiah? Jesus. (laughs) There you have it. Right? We've just read the Christmas story according to the book of Revelation. But this is a Christmas story with a twist. Although she gives birth to the divine Messiah, the woman in this heavenly spectacle isn't Mary. It isn't the mother of Jesus. This, this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head is Israel. And now you may be thinking, well, Pastor John, what sort of Christmas story is this? Someone other than Mary gives birth to Jesus? But think about what the scriptures teach. It's out of Israel, Messiah comes. That was God's promise to the patriarch Abraham. The whole world will be blessed through him, through his seed, because it's through his family line that the Messiah comes. It's as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 9, 5, speaking of the old covenant community of Israel. From them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. So, from this woman springs Jesus, 
the son who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter in fulfillment of Psalm 2.9. And yet this woman isn't simply Israel. Because we see later, we see in verse 17, you're going to want to have your Bibles open on your laps today. Because we see later in verse 17, after Jesus ascends to God, the woman is left behind with the rest of her offspring, the rest of her seed. And it says, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Ah, that means this woman also comes to signify the church. The crown of 12 stars she wears in verse 1, that alludes to the continuation of true Israel, the 12 tribes in the 12 apostles and the church that they represent. This woman represents the collective people of God, whether under the old covenant or the new, the the messianic community, the collective people of God. Verse 2, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then in verse 3, a second sign appears in heaven. An enormous red dragon. And we're left in no doubt as to the identity of this monster. In verse 9, John tells us that it's that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. And here we see the universality of the dragon's awesome kingly power and the divine authority... The divine authority that he's arrogated, that he's wrongly claimed to himself. We read the red dragon has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. And all those crowns and horns and crowns, they symbolize his presumptuous claim to royal divine power. Over against the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ, upon whose head are many crowns of rightful rule and authority. There's a contrast here. Look at, flip over to Revelation 19.11. You're going to see the contrast. Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Ah. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you see? Jesus is the real divine king. On Jesus' head are many crowns of rightful rule and authority. This dragon's horns and crowns, they just show him to be an imposter. He's a pretender. Verse 4, chapter 12. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And that's because in Hebrew poetry, when great momentous events transpire, nature itself gets involved. The hills dance, the trees clap their hands with joy. That's how Hebrew poetry works. And when things go badly, when there's tragedy, when there's rebellion, the stars fall from heaven. Satan is about to attempt something utterly catastrophic. He swings his tail, and a third of the universe collapses. 
What's he trying to do? Verse 4b. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. So her feet are in the stirrups. He stands in front of her so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Now there is a children's Christmas pageant scene we're not likely to see anytime soon. Deliver the child because they're going to eat it. The imagery is grotesque. It's supposed to be grotesque. My mother has a, a little nativity scene that she sets up each year during Christmas on her mantle. It includes baby Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds. But every year... I notice that one figure is missing, an enormous red dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, waiting to eat baby Jesus. Now that would be a shocking thing to see out on the front yard of Mount Pleasant Road Baptist Church, but it gives a full orb picture of the Christmas story, doesn't it? It dispels that hallmark greeting card sentimentality, the bane of the Christmas season. And would get God's people, I think, thinking about the spiritual warfare in which we're engaged. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6, 12. Loved ones, verse 4 does us a service, right? It does us the service of showing the implacable pitiless rage of our enemy, a rage occasioned by the birth of Jesus. Satan wants to destroy Jesus by any means possible. And we see that in the slaughter of all the children on the age of two that King Herod kills, don't we? The, the, the slaughter, the bloodbath of Bethlehem. We see it in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, what Jesus calls the hour of the power of darkness. Luke 22, 53. The hour of the power of darkness. Verse 5b. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And and the the significant point here is that Satan's evil design is foiled by the successful completion of Jesus' mission. What did Jesus say on the cross just before he died? It is finished. All that God the Father had entrusted to God the Son's care had been accomplished. And Jesus' mission culminates in his ascension and exaltation as the Son returns to the glory he once shared with the Father. 5b, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So you can read here, mission accomplished. Excellent. But what about the woman? The Messiah. He's in heaven. He's ruling the universe at the right hand of God. He's safe. But what about us? What about the people of God who are left behind to face the rage of Jesus' defeated foe? That's the issue this chapter addresses. That's what Revelation 12 is about. And believers have been going to this chapter for encouragement for 2,000 years. How does God look after us? Verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her 
by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. <clears throat> All right. There are two entailments of great importance here. We have the wilderness and we have the 1,260 days. And both themes are rooted in the Old Testament. So we're not flying blind. You're not just getting John Bell's subjective interpretation here, okay? We're not flying blind. We can be confident about our interpretation of this verse and its application, which is important because it's so encouraging. John tells us the people of God, the church, they flee into the wilderness. And what does the wilderness mean to a first century Jew steeped in the writings of the Old Testament? Well, the wilderness was the place Israel passed through on the way to the promised land, the land of Canaan. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. It was a time of testing. It was a time of great difficulty, a time of temptations and judgment. It wasn't the promised land, right? It was the wilderness. Nevertheless, later prophets could look back at that time as a time of God wooing his people to himself, of winning and blessing his people. A time God taught his people wonderful lessons, a time of miracles, a, divine of, a time of divine disclosure. Hosea 2.14, this is one example. This is God speaking to spiritually adulterous Israel. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So do you see, it's in the wilderness where God is wooing and winning and loving his people in preparation for the promised land. And verse 6 speaks of this place of spiritual refuge. God takes care of and nurtures his own people in the wilderness as they await the consummation of the kingdom, the ultimate promised land, a new heaven and new earth. What do we see in verse 14? That interpretation bears out. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle, symbolizing divine deliverance and enablement, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. <clears throat> so do you see it's perfectly consistent? Back to verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. What are these strange time references? What, that, what does that actually refer to? 1260 days, a time, times, half a time. Also, Revelation 13:5, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. <coughs> well, if a month is counted as 30 days, then 1260 days is 42 months. And 42 months is three and a half years. Which is the same thing as time, one year, times, two more years, and half a time, half a year, which we read of in verse 14. So that means all these apocalyptic time frames, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, time, times, half a time. They all mean the same thing. And they all reference the same historical event. There's no need to get 
cute here. It, it references the same historical event, the time of the Maccabean revolt against the Syrian general Antiochus Epiphanes from 167 to 164 BC. The Old Testament prophet Daniel prophesied about a period of immense suffering during the, the intertestamental history of the Jews, that time between, the 400 years or so between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. He prophesies about this time period. The Syrian general Antiochus, he outraged the Jews in 168 BC when he erected an altar to Zeus on the temple altar in Jerusalem, and then he sacrificed pigs on it, thus desecrating the temple. Antiochus also made practicing Judaism a capital offense. He outlawed possession of and burned all copies of the Old Testament. He outlawed the Jews from practicing circumcision or keeping the Sabbath on pain of death. He was determined to crush all forms of Jewish worship, but he was eventually defeated in the Maccabean Revolt, a revolt which lasted... Three and a half years. You guessed it. That means John's vision teaches the church that she too will face tribulation. Yes, there will be a period of intense suffering for God's people. But only, only for a concrete period of time. And then there will be victory before God delivers us. The church will overcome the rage of Satan. And we learn how the church overcomes Satan rage in verse 11. That's our concluding point. But brothers and sisters, uh, what I want us to see is, is this is us. This is for us. Uh, this is the period in which we live now. Right? This 1260 days, these 42 months, these three and a half years between the triumph of Christ and his glorious return. Look at your big picture in your bulletin. Satan is at enmity with the woman and her seed. And we'll come to this next part in a minute. He wants to accuse us before God, but Jesus has defanged the dragon, and all his accusations are now toothless against those who trust in Christ. We'll come to that in a second. But now listen. The new exodus has happened. And God is carrying us, those who trust him, on eagles' wings, sustaining us. In the wilderness, as we sojourn toward the promised land, right? The new heavens, the new earth. Satan is making war on us, but the outcome will be as it has been throughout history. Strong as Satan may look, the seed of the woman will crush his head. Christian, where is your home? How you answer that question determines everything. Not in abstract theological theory, but truly, where is your home? Do you think you're home now? Sadly, is that what your prayers and life prioritizations demonstrate? Has the theology of this passage and dozens more like it never really caught fire in your Christian life? Or do you indeed think of yourself as a pilgrim, a pilgrim who's passing through, sojourning on the way to the land of promise, the new heavens, new earth? This world is passing away. 
That world is eternal. By God's enabling grace, has that fact been gloriously integrated into your daily life? Yes, you say, yes, the the new exodus has happened and God is carrying me, God is carrying all those who trust him on eagle's wings. That includes me. He's sustaining his people in the wilderness. He sustains me now. I know it. I believe it. I live like it's true. That, that's good, that good news is dismantling all the, uh, all the idols that are in my heart. That, that's a joyous reality that it, that's being brought to bear again and again in the face of trials and persecutions and disappointments and temptations and suffering. I'm, I'm living this text out. I know it's true. Brothers and sisters, John's vision teaches the church that she will face tribulation in this life. This time between the triumph of Christ and his glorious return. Get ready for it. Yes, there will be intense suffering for God's people, but only for a concrete period of time. And then there will be victory before God delivers us. The church will overcome the rage of Satan. The church will overcome the rage of Satan. And this is put into cosmic terms in verses 7 to 9. Follow along. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael, the archangel, and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth. And his angels with him. This world with devils filled as we sang this morning. And this is a reference to the original expulsion of Satan from heaven before the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Just follow the flow of the text. This is the result of Jesus' ministry. Right? Jesus' birth. Jesus living in a perfectly righteous way. Jesus' triumph on the cross. Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. Michael doesn't triumph over the devil in his own strength. He casts him out of heaven because of the death of Christ. Because of the victory won at Calvary's hill. Chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now... See, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. That wasn't the case back in Genesis 1 and 2. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Because until this time, Satan had in some sense, in some sense, a place in heaven. Uh, do you remember the book of Job and how Satan would stand before God with the angels and say, is it any wonder Job fears you, God, but take away everything he has and strike his body with sickness and Job will curse you to your face. And in the vision of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, Satan stands in the very presence of God at the right hand of Joshua, the high priest, to level accusations against him. Satan actually had the freedom and the audacity to accuse, to accuse our old covenant brothers and sisters in God's own presence. And the evil one was able to do that because God's redeeming work in the birth, 
and victory of his son had not yet been accomplished. Satan could accuse our brothers and sisters, and he could actually accuse God of injustice. This is, this is very important to see. During the time of the Old Covenant, and I think this bears out with some New Testament texts we'll look at in a minute, but during the time of the Old Covenant, Satan could say, Lord, your conduct has betrayed an unholy indulgence towards sin and rebellion mingled with an unholy allowance for mercy towards the guilty. You violated your own holy standards again and again, God. You've been too indulgent in your dealings, your eternal dealings with many of these outrageous anarchists, these rebellious image bearers. They're mine. They're all mine. They must be mine if you're a God of justice. You can't just forgive sinners and still call yourself a holy and righteous God. The blood of bulls and goats can never atone for human sin. It's impossible for the triune God of the universe, the God who hates sin with an infinite repugnance, the God who cannot declare the guilty righteous, the God who must punish sin, to wink at sin and abandon your holy standards and justify guilty sinners. I accuse your children to your face, God. And I accuse you To your face, I accuse you of unholy inconsistency and injustice. Do you see? In the case of the Old Testament believers, God's failure to punish past sins with the wrath that they deserved created the perception that God was not being fully just. Nothing less than God's glory is on the line. But that is precisely the satanic accusation that the cross overturns, isn't it? In the cross, God can forgive guilty, guilty, guilty sinners and be just in doing so. Only in the cross. It's as Paul writes in Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Old Testament saints were saved by faith on credit. Jesus paid that bill. And this great victory enrages Satan. Our adversary, the devil, has great reason now to be enraged against the people of God. You can see this in your bulletin. Point A. His fear is now restricted. He has been hurled to the earth. He can no longer stand before God's presence. So he's not only wicked, right? He's frustrated and angry. His scope has been circumscribed, restricted, limited. And B, Satan knows his time is short. Doesn't that fill you with joy? 
Satan knows that his time is short. In principle, he's already a defeated foe, which means he has nothing to lose. I used this illustration before in our Mark series, but Satan now has what I would call a a Hitler in the bunker mentality. Hitler didn't stop fighting once the Allied troops crossed the border into Germany. He fought on until his bunker in Berlin was literally surrounded. It was a catastrophic waste of German life. If Hitler had had the slightest regard for the German people, he would have surrendered long before. In the end, he had nine-year-old boys manning machine guns protecting Berlin from the Red Army. That's the mentality we're seeing in Revelation chapter 12. Rage. Rage and desperation. Did you know that there were more martyrs in the 20th century than all the other centuries combined? God's kingdom advanced in marvelous ways in the 20th century, but that's still a fact. More martyrs in the 20th century than all the other centuries combined. However, Satan's success is limited. It's limited by God. Look at verse 15. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, her seed. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Mount Pleasant, New City, The devil wars against us. He spews water from his mouth to drown the woman and her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. But God protects us. God establishes the church, and God maintains her welfare. Satan's success is limited. More martyrs than all the other centuries combined, but his success is limited by God. Jesus has promised that the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. It will be established. Which means Satan is fighting a lost cause against the omnipotent, sovereign God. And against those who have been united with his Son through his Holy Spirit. It's hopeless and he knows it. Whenever I play chess against the app on my phone... When it's set to the Bobby Fischer level of difficulty, it feels like every single move I make fits in perfectly with the computer's plan to destroy me. All right, the computer is thinking, yes, John, that was precisely the move I wanted you to make, you idiot. You're making this so easy for me. Every move I make, no matter how hard I think about it, it's just another nail in my coffin. And it delights me. To think how frustrating this must be for the enemy of our soul, Satan. Every wicked scheme the evil puts into action to destroy believers and to destroy the church is in total conformity with the eternal plans and purposes of the sovereign God. Even the murder of Jesus on the cross. We read in Acts 4.28 that Satan was doing what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And in the same way, Satan says, 
I know what I'll do. I'll make China go communist. The most populous nation on the planet, a future world superpower, will be an atheistic and Christian persecuting nation. But what he gets instead, even in the midst of terrible persecution, is the greatest revival in terms of numbers of Christians in centuries. In the West, we read the book of Revelation and we tend to think in an arrogantly limited scope. Oh, this is all prophecy about persecution that will happen to us in the future, we who live in the West. But in the meantime, let's try to figure out the date of Jesus' return by counting the horns on beasts. That is not how the first century church was reading this book when they were being killed by the Emperor Nero. And it's not how our brothers and sisters in Iran today are reading it either. They're looking for comfort. And they receive great comfort from seeing the triumph of Jesus Christ. And they've learned from this book what they must do to overcome the rage of our mutual adversary. In one crucial verse, Revelation 12, 11, John tells believers how we overcome Satan's rage. Do you want to know how? Look at verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Peter, Jill, Sam, Joe, Stephanie, Katerina, you sinned this week. I sinned this week. Each of us, all of us, we've deliberately defied the holy God. And so, Satan accuses us. He brings our guilt before our eyes and shows us how far we've fallen from God's glorious, holy, perfect standard. And all the devil's accusations are just accusations if we're gauging things only by the quality of our faithfulness. Yet, Satan is silenced when we insist that our acceptance before God is grounded not in ourselves and our faithfulness, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb, the death of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 34, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we neither have nor need another ground for our acquittal. It's as we'll sing in our closing song today, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied. To look on him and pardon me. That's the ground by which we overcome the rage of Satan. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Second, Christians overcome the rage of Satan by the word of their testimony. At New City in Mount Pleasant, a prospective member will write out what we call a testimony for other members to read or listen to before accepting them into the membership of our church family. This is different. 
This doesn't mean Christians frequently give their testimonies at baptism services and so overcome Satan. It means we constantly bear testimony to Jesus Christ. We constantly proclaim the gospel. That's what spells Satan's defeat. If we keep silent, loved ones, Satan wins. That's why we pray for more churches in this city with pastors who preach the gospel. It's how we combat the rage of Satan. That's why we pray for more churches who bear faithful testimony to what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's how we combat the rage of Satan. That's why we pray for evangelistic boldness over the Christmas holidays. It's how we combat the rage of Satan. And third, we overcome Satan's rage by not loving our lives so much as to shrink from death. In the context, this means physical death, certainly. Satan cannot defeat an opponent opponent who is not only willing to die, but for whom death means winning. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1.21? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But it also means... Death to self-interest. It means picking up our cross daily and living for Jesus. Death to the world. Death to sin. Verse 12. Therefore, rejoice. Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Rejoice because the accuser has been cast down. Satan has been cast out of heaven. He's lost his accusatorial position. The seed of the woman has crushed the serpent's head. He has been deposed in the gospel. Jesus has won. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But, verse 12b, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, with rage, Because he knows his time is short. Beloved, I don't know what the year 2024 holds. What does 2024 hold for the Church of Jesus Christ across the globe? Or in Canada? Or in Toronto? Unprecedented revival? Unprecedented persecution? Something in between? What has God ordained for you, for you and for your family in this coming year? Harvest feast or fallow ground? What does 2024 hold for the nations of the world? Israel, Palestine, Ukraine, China, Taiwan, the United States. What does the coming year hold for our two churches? Lord willing, for our one church, post-merger. I don't know. What I do know is this. 1 John 4.4 He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Christian, there will be times in the coming year when the great dragon, that ancient serpent is persecuting you and your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. There will be times when you will feel afraid, you will feel desperate, you will feel depressed. That's when you must remember the whole 
Bible storyline. The whole story. You, you know how it all ends. You know it. Yet, yes, difficult and tragic events will continue to occur. But a new exodus has happened. And God is carrying those who trust him on eagle's wings and sustaining us in the wilderness as we sojourn towards the promised land, the new heaven and new earth. Yes, Satan is making war on us. He, he rages against the church. He hates us. But Jesus, the serpent slayer, has already decisively defeated Satan. And at the end, he will finally and completely crush his head. Do not doubt the serpent slayer's plan, his valor, his power, or his goodness. He always does what is right. Trust him. Trust Jesus. As you prayerfully await that glorious day when Jesus, the faithful and true, the word of God, the one who rules the nations with an iron scepter, the King of kings and Lord of lords, returns to consummate his eternal kingdom. Amen.